0: So Slate.com said 2014 was the year of outrage. It was the year of offense. And we live in a Huge outrage offense culture. What do I mean by that? It means that we live in a day and age because of social media and because so many of news outlets and the way sometimes that we interact in the digital world and on Facebook and Twitter and even sometimes it trickles down to our politics and the classroom and the workplace that offense has become a way of life for many people. In fact, on Slate.com, they chronicled an offense for every day of 2014, and a lot of it was as quick as a vapor, as quick as it would appear and people would be outraged and offended and aggrieved and upset and furious, it would disappear and people would be on to something else the very next day. In fact, as I glanced through many of the offenses that they listed, I thought to myself, oh yeah, I remember that. What happened to that? What happened to that? Where'd that go? What happened to all the outrage? What happened to all the fury? What happened to all the concern about this? Because the next day it was on to something else. We have become a a culture in some ways that loves to be offended. Or we at least love to pretend or say that we're offended. Offended or being offended has become one of those things, in fact, that shuts down conversation or sometimes can move people in a different topic or conversation that they don't want to talk about or shuts down a conversation if they do want to talk about it because all someone has to do sometimes is claim that they've been offended. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be offensive. I'm not saying that what we should do is act pugnacious or aggressive or mean-spirited with people or seek to, in some ways, think that we're Christians who tell it like it is and that we say mean-spirited things to people. But what I am saying is that we've also found ourselves in a place where sometimes we are afraid to hear anything that's quote-unquote offensive. And sometimes the very things that are offensive might be the things that help us grow might be the things that are breakthrough breakthroughs of the, the sin that we've been struggling with, the loneliness that we've been battling, the identity crisis that we find ourselves in, the constant habitual sin that we can't seem to escape. And God's word sometimes cuts like a knife and can seem offensive and even abrasive and hard, but it's not meant to destroy or wound or hurt, but it's meant to heal and restore and reconcile and provide redemption. Our culture of outrage and offensiveness, um, it, it can destroy community. I mean, if, if you're in a community group or you're in a life group or you're um, in, 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 in your families or workplaces, if you have that person that, that even the slightest bit of criticism, we all know that person, or the slightest bit of conversation or topic that they don't want to talk about, they take an offense to it, what it does is it deteriorates community because people begin to walk on eggshells and they begin to actually say what they really think and feel and mean. And we all kind of start going through the motions and staying very surfacey and superficial. But the good stuff, often the life-changing stuff happens when we're willing to say the hard things. And being overly sensitive sometimes and, and afraid to be offended inhibits our growth. And we, we become stagnant and stale and we fail to grow and become who God would want us to be because we, we no longer give people access to um, put the hard truths into our hearts and to place them there out of love. Now, truth needs to be spoken in love, but love without no truth is just sentimentality. It's no good. It has no substance to it. It's it's empty. It's kind of like empty calories, if you think about it. I think it's also, too, a sign that we've forgotten our true identity. Many people, the reason I think they struggle so much with being offended is they don't have an identity that's really rooted in who they're loved by and who they're made by. And so any word of criticism or any challenge to what they believe and think and feel and want can feel like an egregious attack upon who they are. And we misconstrue an idea or some action that we have with who we actually are. And we get those things conflated with one another. And so we live in a culture where, to be honest, things are hard to navigate when it comes to an offense. But here's the truth, and we're going to look at it in this passage tonight. Jesus often says things that are very offensive. In fact, the whole message of the gospel is incredibly offensive. Now does that mean Jesus' followers, us as Christians who want to love and serve and seek the welfare of our city and our communities and our neighborhoods and our workplaces are to be jerks? Absolutely not. But it does mean that if someone's going to stumble over anything that it would be the gospel, that it would be the good news of who Jesus is and his work on the cross rather than our actions. And we have to learn to delineate and be able to understand the difference between those two things. So here we find ourselves in John 6, and if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you'll notice that this is a jammed, pack section. Jesus did a miracle a ways back in which he took a Hebrew lunchable and he fed five to 15,000 people with just a few fishes and pieces of bread, and he got everyone's attention. Needless to say, when there's no refrigeration and people are usually living hand to mouth, if you start making food out of nothing, people are going to follow you pretty quickly. It's definitely going to get people's attention. Uh, So Jesus now has a crowd, and he doesn't use this opportunity to kind of build his own platform or to get more people to like him, but rather he uses it to lay down some incredibly heavy truths. He starts saying some things that in some ways you would never say if your goal was to just keep the crowd. Jesus begins to get very honest with them and tell them the truth about who he is and why he came and what matters most to him. In fact, he's told people that you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want eternal life. That you guys who have spent all of your life following and trusting Moses, and, and, and you go back to the Exodus story, you're failing to realize that right in front of you stands the eternal, true bread of life. That I, I alone will satisfy every appetite you may have. I mean, I just think of the old Rolling Stones song that said, I can't get no satisfaction. Even though I try and I try and I try. And that's been the human proclamation for thousands of years now. As we seek to find satisfaction in a myriad of different things. And along comes Jesus and he says, I'm the final thing you need to satiate those appetites, those longings, those needs, those wants that you've been so desperately wrestling with. And this has their attention, but it also is offensive. This is offensive. Jesus is challenging their entire way of life. He's challenging their belief system. He's challenging their values. In some ways, he's even challenging their race, their ethnicity. Because these are good Jews who keep to the law, who keep to the Torah, and the 612 commandments of the Old Testament. And here comes Jesus, and he's pushing away from these things. And he's challenging their entire way of life. And he's actually beginning to make proclamations that whoever... I mean, think of John 3.16, whomever believes in me would have eternal life. He's expanding out and saying, my message isn't just for for the Jews, God's quote-unquote elect or chosen people, but my message is for whomever. Jesus is breaking down a cultural and racial line that has been steadfast among the Jewish people for a long, long time. What a beautiful and I would argue very relevant message for what's going on even with us today. So let's look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, they're not saying it's a hard saying in the sense, and if you want, you can go to John 6, or I'm going to have it up here too. Um, Here we go. You can follow along up there, even in your Bibles. So, they're not saying that this is a hard saying like trig, trigonometry, or calculus. So, when I was in high school, they put me in trigonometry. I lasted about three weeks, and then they put me back in the weightlifting class um, my senior year. So, they knew they'd made a mistake, and plus, I actually just lacked the motivation. So, I wasn't going to learn, and actually, it was way over my head, anyways, and I had no future building bridges, anyways. So, what was I doing in there? So, but that was hard for me to understand. This is not necessarily hard for the people to understand, this is hard for them to accept. What Jesus is saying, it's not like they don't understand it. It's not like he's speaking gibberish or pig Latin and they don't understand his words. This is hard for them to embrace. It's like hugging a cactus for them. They think of, we cannot accept, we cannot embrace, we cannot incorporate what you're saying. We refuse to hug the cactus of your teachings. We refuse to go down that road with you. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? What I love is people grumble. I mean, grumbling is a very natural part, especially even of the human life. The, The Jews were doing it way back in the Exodus story. The followers of Jesus are doing it here, and we often do it in our lives. We grumble, we complain, we find things to sometimes be very unthankful about, and Jesus pushes back, especially when it comes to his teachings, and says, do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at this? And the answer is so obvious. Of course they take offense at this. They can't begin to think that Jesus would come in and upset the apple cart in this way. This is not at all what they were expecting. After Jesus began feeding thousands of people, what they really thought is that he was going to be a political hero for them. They're tired of the Roman Empire. They're tired of the Roman government. They're tired of their temple being under the authority and the dominion of the Roman Empire. And they think Jesus will finally be our Savior. They think of Jesus much more like George Washington than they do God of the universe. And in some ways, they actually want a George Washington. They want a liberator, a political liberator, much more than they want a God of the universe. They're bent. They're driven. They're focused on political freedom. They have an agenda for Jesus. There's still many, even in our day, who have an agenda for Jesus, and Jesus never bows, he never kowtows to our agendas, but instead, instead demands that we come under his agenda. See, Jesus' agenda was so much bigger than ruling at this one point in human history. He did not just say, I came to 33 AD to rule over earth. I came to rule over earth forever, for all time, in all places, I did not come to overthrow Caesar. I came to overthrow evil and death. So much greater. But yet sometimes we want to put Jesus in a box and we minimize his agenda and we minimize why he came. And maybe it was just to give us a happier life or to balance out our kids or to get us through school or to find the career occupation that we have or to even up the moral scorecard as long as we do what we're supposed to do. And Jesus says, I'm doing something so much bigger than that. There's this mission of redemption that I'm set out upon, in which I'm seeking to free this broken, groaning world from Satan, sin, and death, and tragedy, and sorrow. And this is what makes the gospel truly universal. Every other religion is not universal. In many ways, it's geographically geographically confined. If you look at Islam, it has, a, it has Mecca. Or if you look at um, Hinduism or Buddhism, there is a geographical location where you go to further study or to dive into those religions. And often what comes along with that are dietary restrictions and a language that you must speak and cultural customs. But the gospel has no customs except to love your neighbor and to love God with all of your heart. That's our ethic. That's our way of life. It has no language other than a language of love. It has no place in which we gather that is more holy than any other place. But rather, God has taken up residence in you and I. And we, us, the people of God, his church, we have become his temple. We have become where he dwells. This is a universal message. And as this universal message has always spread throughout church history, is it's offended people and cultures at different places and at different points. If you were to go over to the Middle East right now, they would have no problem with the sexual ethics of the Bible, but they would be greatly offended by the idea of grace and mercy and forgiveness, that God would let guilty people go. They wouldn't even begin to understand that. And you hear in the West, we love grace and mercy, but God's justice and sometimes his wrath and what he says even about our sex or our finances or our future, we bristle at that. And that's what makes the gospel so beautiful is it's not culturally conditioned. It's not culturally confined, but it's always bristling. It's always pressing. It's always pushing against cultures and against you and I even individually. It's a beautiful, transcendent, universal message. But you and I, you and I, we get the opportunity to ask ourselves when the Bible offends us, when we come across something in the scriptures, and I don't know about you guys, but this happens pretty frequently to me. I come across something in the scriptures that if I'm honest, my first inclination is not to go, oh boy, can't wait to implement that, can't wait to surrender to that, can't wait to submit to that, can't wait to begin doing that. But sometimes there's pushback, sometimes there's resistance, sometimes there's even just confusion. But the the question is, for the follower of Christ, is, is who wins out? Does Does God's word, does does the Bible get to have the final authority in your life? See, I I would argue if that you're reading the Bible all the time and there's never a part of it that offends you or sometimes challenges you, then you might not be reading it right because there's a whole lot to be offended about inside this book. There's a whole bunch of things in here that if you're reading it right, it's going to cause you to bristle. It's going to cause you to push back those are those moments where we lean into the holy spirit and we trust the spirit's work in our life and we ask him to change our hearts and our affections and our desires and say Jesus make me conform to your image rather than me getting out kind of a, a black highlighter and stripping those parts out of the bible so that i can ignore them and 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 you become more like what i want and how and the god i want to follow and that's really the test for us so jesus says are you offended this word offended this word offended is, is, is incredibly powerful, and that's why I spent even the beginning of my message talking about a culture of offense because the Greek word here actually is scandalizo, scandalizo. So that's why I even called the sermon the scandalous grace. Scandalizo is exactly what it sounds like. That's where we get our Greek word for scandal, for scandal. What is really going on here is Jesus saying is my message, the message that I have is in some ways scandalous, It's scandalous. The same way that we sit by our TVs and we check out social media when a new scandal breaks or our political leaders seem to be caught in a new scandal or there's a new scandal for us to pay attention to in Hollywood or some other form of entertainment or even sometimes within the church. This is a scandal. That means that this is intolerable to people. People find it offensive. They find it intolerable. They can't accept it. Jesus saying, "Does this scandalize you? Does this scandalize you?" I want to be careful with what I say here, but um, this this last week, like a, a lot of you, have found myself with a, a heavy heart, given what's gone on in um, in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, especially at um, Emmanuel AME Church, and. Uh, I don't know, just asking questions. Lord, what, what are you doing? What's going on? How do we process this? How do we understand um, what it means when our brothers and sisters in Christ are brutally killed inside a church? And, and what's the answer? And where do we go from here? And then, uh, like a lot of you, I, I saw the video of the arraignment for the, the shooter in which many of the family members got up. And were able to say something that was on their mind and person after person began to utter statements of forgiveness toward the shooter. Felicia Sanders, her son Tawanza Sanders was there uh, at the Bible study and Tawanza was a a poet and a barber and an aspiring entrepreneur. And here's what she said when she addressed the, the shooter. We welcome you Wednesday night, into our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I have known. Every fiber of my body hurts, and I will never be the same. But as we say in Bible study, we enjoyed you, and may God have mercy on you. I can't even imagine how I'd respond. I can't even imagine what kind of grace it takes to say something like this. And as I was reading an article recapping a lot of these similar statements from family members, I I made the the mistake of going to the bottom and reading some of the comments and never read comments on an internet article. Um, But I did. And uh, what stuck out to me was that the statements from these family members toward the shooter, these statements of grace, these statements of forgiveness were a scandal to many. They were offensive. In fact, comment after comment said something to the effect of, how stupid would you have to be to forgive someone who just shot your family member? Are they brainwashed? Are they silly? What's wrong with them? I could never do that. That's so foolish. That's naive. That's dumb. Or a very Immanuel Kant idea of forgiveness, which is, how can we forgive these people? They haven't earned it. How could the family members even begin to think of forgiveness because it hasn't been earned. And even when the shooter was being extended forgiveness, he still just stood blankly, not looking like he was being receptive to the messages of grace. But you see, that's exactly it. The very message of the gospel is scandalous. It's incredibly offensive because it has nothing to do with earning. It has nothing to do with what anyone deserves at all. It has completely to do with a God who would come down into human flesh. And I think of the name even of that church, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, A-M-E, Emmanuel, God with us. So where is God? God, you are with us when tragedies like this hit. God, you are with us in these broken places. God, you are with that church when crisis hits. And you walk amongst us in our pain. You know what it's like to suffer. You know what it's like to be betrayed. You even know what it looks like to be sold out for murder by Judas. God, you know what it's like, and yet you still die on the behalf of these people. The scandal, the absolute scandal, is that no one deserves forgiveness. No one deserves grace. You and I have never gotten what we deserve from God. It's such a scandal. He continues to be gracious to you and I. He continues to show us kindness even when we don't deserve it. And many who would look on would say this is foolishness, and they're exactly right. The cross does appear to be foolish to those who don't understand the scandal of grace. It's altogether scandalous. The gospel is such a scandal because God is willing to save anybody and not because of what you've earned and not because of what you've done or not because you're special but because of God's incredible grace. And So I don't know how we move forward. I don't know What God has in store for our brothers and sisters at Emmanuel AME. I do know, and some of the things I think that Jesus teaches us, very straightforward, is that all of us in a time like this, where sometimes the conversations can turn into rhetoric, offenses can quickly become political. That this is a time for us to love our neighbor more than our political parties. That this is a time for us to care more deeply about people than even a party platform that this is a time for us to build relationships rather than to try to win arguments. I think that this is a time in which we love and we listen very carefully, and we ask God to continue to to help us as a a church, but as a a country and even a, a Christian community as we weep and we mourn with our brothers and sisters in South Carolina. I've just been blown away. I was blown away even today just watching the services they had at their church this morning of seeing the response of grace and love in an act that was filled with hate and division and terror. And there was just a moment in which I could see the kingdom of God being reflected in the way that these people were responding. And they were talking to some of the family members again and once again just saying, Because of the God that we love, because of the God that we serve, because of the God that we know, we move forward in forgiveness and grace and love. Something altogether that doesn't make sense to the world, it's foolish to the world, but at the same time, it makes all the sense in the world because a God who loves you and I has come down to pay for our sins so that you and I could have new life. So that forgiveness and grace could be a way in which we live. Look, there's hope for all of us. There's hope even for Dylan Roof, the shooter. <laughs> that's a scandal. I mean, let's go to work tomorrow and tell people that we think God's not done with Dylan Roof. See how offended they are at that. But that's exactly the extent, that's exactly the length to which God's grace goes. It always goes so much further than we could ever imagine. Moses was a murderer, Paul was a murderer. Paul, Paul actually. Stephen, the very first martyr of the church in Acts 8, he he gives basically a sermon inside a church. So, once again, someone not feeling safe inside of a church. Paul's there, has him drug out and then stoned. And God uses him. God wasn't done with Paul. David, adulterer and murderer, but God wasn't done with them. This is the scandal of God's grace. Our world actually finds this offensive that even in the midst of heinous evil and, and, and suffering and, and just depravity, that grace would be available, that grace would abound. But that's the message of the gospel, and that's what makes it so entirely scandalous. And I love this, because Jesus continues to ratchet it up. Verse 62 and 63. Then what, is Jesus speaking, then what if you were to see the Son of Man, that's him, ascending to where he was before. So Jesus is saying, what if you were to see me ascending back up into heaven? I love this hypothetical because Jesus knows this hypothetical is going to become a reality. So he's in some ways, he's actually testing them. He's reminding them that once again, I'm not, excuse me, I'm not here for a political mission, but going back to John 1 when I told you my very, purpose was to come down and to rupture heaven so that heaven would come to earth and when you guys begin to pray the lord's prayer on earth as it is in heaven that's not not just a nice flowery statement but that becomes a functional reality of our lives on earth as it is in heaven jesus ruptures this world he begins to bring heaven down he begins to unfold the kingdom of god he begins to expand his presence so that justice would go forth, so that mercy and grace would go forth. And what Jesus is saying is that I'm not here once again for a political purpose, but you guys are going to see me ascending in no time flat. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to heaven. Don't forget that. Don't forget that I'm the one who sits on the throne at the right hand of God, and I rule and reign over everything. Don't forget what my real identity and purpose is. And then Jesus says in verse 63, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. I love this. What Jesus is saying is don't take any confidence whatsoever in the flesh. And this would have been, once again, very scandalous and offensive to the audience here. These people are very used to taking comfort in the flesh, which means their works, their accomplishments, how much they can practice self-discipline and willpower and even a sense of regimented focus. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not great at willpower. If I have cookies in the house, I start eating them all. So I have to just tell Crystal, don't even bring him in because I I have no willpower whatsoever. There's no hope in my flesh when it comes to cookies and ice cream. I'm going to lose every single time. I'm hopeless against them. And Jesus says, though, if you want life, if you want life, it's going to be found in his words and his spirit, in his words and in his spirit. What Jesus is saying is all the other things that you think are going to satisfy you, that are going to bring you life, that you think you might even find life in your education, in a spouse, in a relationship, in maybe new technology, or the advancements of our society, or the things that we think are going to save us, or the things that we think will satisfy us from food to a vacation, to an accomplishment, to a new job, to even a school, that these things don't offer life. The thing that offers life is the word of God. God's word alone. God's word. Jesus is saying, return to me. Stop doing the hamster wheel of religion. Stop getting busy and thinking then that means I'll be more proud of you. Stop thinking you have anything to earn. Don't you remember the entire scandal of the gospel is that you can't earn anything at all, but it's all undeserved. It's all unmerited. It's all free. And this is the greatest scandal of all. It is the greatest offense of the gospel because we all go back over and over and over to wanting to earn, to wanting to justify, to wanting to prove ourselves, to wanting to keep score. What does that mean? If, if there's not things for us to do to earn, if legalism's dead, if the law has no power over us, what does that mean? How do we grow? Well, God has banged the gavel that you're justified, that when he looks on you, he sees righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ and your sanctification. In fact, I would encourage you, as you read the Gospel of John, if you read it slowly, circle every time you see the word abide. It's all over the Gospel of John, the word Abide. In fact, I would argue abide can in some ways sum up all of the theology of John. Because what he's saying is rest. It's finished. Remember your identity. Be near me. Be with me. Come to me. Think of Jesus' words as he stood over Jerusalem and he said, oh Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you to myself like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would have none of it. What Jesus is saying is it's an invite. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me and abide. Come to me and abide. This is the invitation of the gospel. This is the invitation of Jesus here. That you can't do it. That the flesh is no help at all. I love this too because Jesus knows what's going on in their mind. So here's what he says in verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. Well, that's obvious. There's a lot of people there, so that's a good bet. For Jesus knew... From the beginning, who it was that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. So Jesus knows all about Judas, which we'll get to in a second. And Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Uh Uh-oh. I know Drew talked about this a little bit last week, but Jesus is making the same point again. And the reason he's making the same point again is because, once again, here's more offense. Here is more scandal. We are offended often by the reality, by the the truth that salvation is a complete work of the Lord, that it's all God, that he's the one who chooses us, that he's the one who saves us, that he's the one that intervenes in our life. He's the one who comes down and rescues us. Ephesians 2 tells us we're completely dead. Your sin kills you. You're dead. This is not Princess Bride where you're mostly dead. This is all dead dead. This is completely dead. There isn't just mostly dead where you can still make some decisions. You're completely dead. Dead people make no decisions. Dead people do not have a will. Dead people do not make choices. Dead people are dead. And so Jesus comes and he breathes new life. And this is called regeneration, in which he breathes new life into them. And with this new life comes a new identity and a new nature, and he gives them new affections. And they become a new creation in Christ. This is, this is the gospel, and it's offensive because we also love To vote. We're Americans. We love democracy. What? Don't I get a say? Don't I get a choice? Don't I get a vote? No, you get no vote. God gets a vote and He chooses you. And He loves you. I know this is where some of my reformed friends will immediately go, Well, I guess that means we just do nothing because God's made all the decisions. Eh, wrong. What this means is that you get to tell people about Jesus and God does all of the work. He does all of the choosing. He does all of the saving and we trust him and we know that he's the one who's gonna change hearts. He's the one that's gonna save people and we get to be faithful missionaries. So don't be that reformed guy or girl who cops out from loving your neighbor, from sharing the gospel, because you get fatalistic and deterministic and just think God's gonna do it all. That is not what Jesus is saying here at all. In fact, what he's saying is that this is the beautiful reality of grace, is that it's all a work of me. Because here's the truth, all of us, we still wanna smuggle in just this thread of my work. Well, I made a really good decision. I made a really good choice. I decided to walk an aisle. I decided to pray a prayer. I looked at the totality of information and studied the scriptures and the historicity of the Bible and the person and work of Jesus Christ and, you know, all of Jesus of Nazareth, and I decided that he was the most logical choice to be God. No, you didn't. God saved you. And I've never met anyone who said, I'm really bummed out God saved me. I can't believe he he interfered. I can't believe he got in the way. I can't believe he overrode my will no, when God saves you, it's, it's praise God, and we raise our hands in worship, and we sing songs of joy because there's new life, and we find ourselves being able to sing amazing grace in a completely new and profound way. Now, I know just like you, it immediately sometimes makes us think, well, what about my, my lost friends and family members and brothers and sisters? Well, they're alive, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Start praying for them and love them and serve them and tell them about Jesus and care for them. And, and, and don't be that person who just thinks, well, if God wants to save them, he'll save them. No, God's using you. God chose you. You're his instrument. You're his, his vessel, his ambassador of good news into their life. And guess what? Here's the best news of all. However much you love that person, God loves them infinitely more because he died for them. So as much as you love that person, God loves them even more. That's the beautiful news. And we get to be faithful. We get to trust God because God is a good God. He's a good father who loves us and he loves people. And he wants us to continue to seek and save the lost and to share the gospel with whoever would listen. But it's all a work. It's all a work. It's all a work of Jesus. I'm going to keep going because otherwise we'll we'll be here all day. Um, Verse 66 After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I love this. So they're beginning to finally be tipped off that this is scandalous. They don't like it. Once again, they're very used to follow the 612 commandments of the Old Testament and God will be pleased with you. What they like, what they prefer, and if we're honest, some of us do, is they like a transactional experience with God much more than a relational one. Let me explain that. Transactional is this. Transactional is the type of relationship I have with the IRS. Me and the IRS, we don't visit. We don't vacation together. We don't write love letters to one another. We don't recreate together. We don't do coffee together. Here's what, it's very transactional. I fill out the proper paperwork. I fill out the forms because I don't want to interact with them at all. So it's transactional. I'm staying on your good side so that you stay away from me. And this is the view that many people have of God. Very transactional, very IRS-like. God, I'll tithe. Maybe I'll even show up to that group. I'll go to church every once in a while. I'll maybe even serve. I'll, whatever it might be, it's very transactional. But God, don't expect me to actually come to you in prayer and give you my innermost being and let you press into the deep parts of my life where that need to be exposed. Don't let the gospel consume me. So that I have to face who I really am and surrender my identity and my hopes and my dreams and my fears and my ambitions to you. Don't make it personal. Let's keep it transactional. And so they begin to walk away. Because the gospel is always pressing. It's always going further. It's always going deeper. Jesus has no room for the transactional. He's always wanting to make it personal. He's going to make it very, very personal. Because what Jesus is doing right now, he's doing the exact opposite of how to win win friends and influence people. He's doing how to lose a crowd and offend people. So he's doing the opposite. We'll see that in verse 67 here. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come now To know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you want to leave now? Do you want to leave? Do you want to go? Do you want to give up? Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, one of the saddest things is often when you see someone walk away from Jesus. Walk away. And maybe it's because they had a really awful experience or they felt betrayed or let down or maybe even a church burn them or they felt frustrated or maybe a group didn't work out the way they thought it was going to work out or maybe God didn't come through for them in a moment in which they thought God would come through or maybe they feel like God's disappointed them for the last time so they begin to walk away and here's the thing this is once again where we have to avoid getting way too theological sometimes where we start quoting first John and going well he who's been sent out was never among us but instead we remember the parable of the lost sheep Where Jesus says, I'll leave the 99 over here to go after the 1. So if that person's in your life, if there's a person you know that has been amongst you, that has been part of your, your Christian family, part of your Christian community, and they've walked away, don't let them walk away from you. Love them. Pursue them. Go, go, go. Follow them. Care for them. Don't, don't, don't theolo- theologize it and think that there's somehow this is, this is a person who was never saved. We don't know. God is the one who separates the wheat from the chaff. He's the one who says goat and sheep. That is not our work. That is not our domain. It is our domain to chase after people, to pursue them, to love them, to care for them, to tell them the gospel, to be near to them, to remind them of the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. That's our work. Man, and I I find myself in a a season like that with a number of friends right now where there's just immense heartache as I've watched people walk away from Jesus. But I know, I mean, there's this this deep burden inside me that Jesus is telling me, don't walk away from them. Draw near. Pursue. Go after those people. Love those people. So here's where it closes up. Peter, Peter always speaks up. That's why you have to love Peter. Peter gets a bad rap. Sometimes people call Peter a coward or say he was too... You know, haphazard. But Peter, actually, I loved him. He was actually willing to always take a chance. He was taking a risk, and he was willing to live life. And I love this. Peter, actually, you can almost, I I hear it in his voice, where he's like, where else would we go? Where else? Almost as if he's thought about it. And I don't know about you, but you've probably had moments, and I've had moments. Like, what if I did leave? What if I did give up on church? What if I did say to Jesus, no more? What if, what if, what if, what if? He's entertained those ideas, but here's the thing. Peter says, you alone have eternal life. I love what Peter says. Is Peter says, that truth is going to win out over any feeling or circumstance or situation, regardless of how bleak it might look, because now the crowds have completely left. It's only 12 of us left. There's only 12 of us. Jesus, what did you do? We had thousands and thousands of people, and you whittled it back down to 12? This is a bad circumstance. But Peter goes, truth truth, who God is, who Jesus is, wins out. That wins out. So what do we do? What do we do when we feel like God has abandoned us, that God has let us down, that God has not come through, that tragedy has struck and we're not sure where to turn. We return to truth. You alone are my maker. You love me. You have eternal life. You have good for me. I will trust you. We, we we begin to have that Job-like experience where we say, Blessed be the name of the Lord who gives in those those moments of plenty and those moments of joy and who takes away when there's death and senseless tragedy and unemployment and loss and sorrow and heartache. You're still God. You're still good. I'm still gonna follow you because where else can I go? There's nowhere, there's nowhere that offers this grace. There's nowhere that offers eternal life. There's nowhere that offers this, this, this love that you give us. So Jesus doesn't get swept up in the praise of Peter, but instead he, he quickly turns around and Jesus, Jesus says to them, look at it again with me. I did not choose you, the twelve, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon of Issacrat, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I, I couldn't stop thinking, once again, just about what's going on in South Carolina this week and the scandalous reality of grace and what Jesus must have been facing and thinking at a moment like this. He knows exactly what Judas is going to do, for, do to him, and that's still a year away. Jesus has already been hanging with Judas for two years, two years up to this point, and it's still a year before the Last Supper in which Judas walks out and he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Not even gold, silver, which is, I mean, couldn't he have got gold for God? I mean, you, you would think, but instead he got silver, 30 pieces, and Jesus knows this, and he's still going to do ministry with them. He's still going to do life with them. He's not only going to do life with them, but at the Last Supper, he's going to wash Judas's feet. Ever thought about that? Judas is literally moments away from storming out of this meal and going to sell Jesus for murder, and Jesus is washing his feet. Where where does this guy come from? This is so scandalous. This is so offensive. If someone was about to murder you, you would not be washing their feet. I wouldn't be washing their feet. And yet here is a grace that goes far beyond anything that you and I could ever even fathom that our world could understand, that our world would even tolerate. Jesus says, this is the way for my people. This morning... Um, in the sermon at A.M.E. Emmanuel, Norvell Goff, who was one of their elders, got up to preach and he said something that uh, brought tears to my eyes and it just made me think of this type of scandalous grace. This type of grace that would have Jesus wash the feet of Judas moments before being betrayed by him. And Goff said this, if you know our daddy, you know how his children will act. You know our daddy if if you know our god then it makes sense how we his children would respond to such heinous evil and sorrow and suffering the god who made everything the god who humbled himself to come down to be near you and i to be betrayed rejected despised and abandoned by his followers still washes feet to such an extent that he would go to a cross and he would pour out his blood and he would suffer a horrific death so that you and I wouldn't have to, so that we wouldn't have to earn forgiveness, but it would be scandalously given to us. That we would have new life. And because of this new life, you and I have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us so that when tragedy strikes, so that when sorrow comes, so that when pain is our reality, We can say like Norvell Goff said this morning, if if you know our Heavenly Father, then it makes sense that we His children would respond in this way. I hope that's true of us. Because those moments, those moments of sorrow, those moments of suffering, those moments of tragedy, they'll come, they'll come for all of us. And as we're in a moment now where we weep with those who weep, our brothers and sisters at AME, Emmanuel in South Carolina, I'm, I'm reminded that the, the same spirit that dwells in them, that allow, has allowed them to so graciously and amazingly display the gospel to the watching world and show such incredible compassion and forgiveness that the world doesn't even begin to comprehend that same Holy Spirit that empowers all of that lives in you and I, is available to you and I. And that, that's such good news. And that is the scandal. That's the scandal of grace. Let's pray.